0: We're on episode six, and I'm your host, author and entrepreneur, Emily White. Huge thanks to the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment for making the season happen. This live podcast taping is part of New York Music Month, the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem. June June also means it's Pride Month. I want to deeply thank our partners over at the Ally Coalition for supporting us and the crucial work they're doing. Founded in 2013 by Jack and Rachel Antonoff, the Ally Coalition provides critical support for organizations dedicated to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth and raises raises awareness about the systematic inequalities facing the LGBTQ population. The Ally Coalition is committed to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth through tours, social media campaigns, and collaborative partnerships. To learn more and how you can get involved, visit theallycoalition.org. Okay, here we go. Today, we are focusing on setting up your release and distribution plan. Um, But to recap, you've gotten your art together, your pre-recording marketing platforms are in place, and you're monetizing your music before it's even out through pre-orders and through through Patreon. We've covered, excuse me, everything you need to know or everything you need to do legally around your music, in particular, ensuring everyone in the studio signs a work-for-hire agreement, and you have a clear process to discuss and confirm songwriting, songwriting splits. Uh, thank you, Liquid Death. Uh, you've recorded your music and registered your songwriting uh, with the Performing Rights Organization and song trust. <coughs> Or your publishing administrator. So now it's time to release your music. That's what we're doing today, setting up your release and distribution plan. Okay, so your fans want to support you in the best ways possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them. So who here has just excitedly released music and popped their Spotify link up on their social media the day it's out? The day it's out. Yancey, it's release day for Yancey back there. Of course, everybody's raising their hand. Every artist, there's too many artists do that. So as I mentioned, we've discussed monetizing your music before it's even out via a pre-order through your website and Bandcamp and or Patreon to take your your fans along on the journey of your release. Uh, Sorry about that. I recommend pushing that again when your release day comes but now they can purchase your release in full and hear all of the music. All of the music immediately for their fam, for, for your fans. I'm going to take a huge gulp of water. <laughs> I ate some chocolate right before I ate some cacao nibs, and that's going on in my throat, so thank you for bearing with me. Okay, I'll say that again because that's, that's really important. I, rec- I recommend pushing that again, so your pre-order... Uh, when your release day comes because now they can purchase uh, the music you're releasing in full and hear all of the music immediately right away so let your fans know this is the number one way to support you and really better yet if you can give your community.com your email list and patreon fans the music a few days early so they feel special because they are they're your most hardcore loyal fans and frankly will spend the most money on supporting you. So let them. Your music should absolutely be out on Bandcamp and streaming platforms on your release day. I'm not saying like, don't do that. But it's like, what are you pushing? What are you promoting? Are you pushing, hey, give me fractions of a penny? Or hey, give me dollars, tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars, hopefully thousands of of dollars, right? (coughs) Excuse me. So, but on day one, I want you sharing these bundles from your website, which is going to have the highest profit margins and 100% data collection from all of your fans. And then you can use that data collection, those email addresses, <coughs> excuse me, mobile phone numbers. And then you can communicate your shows and future releases to your fans directly without solely relying on social media algorithm platform, so- social media algorithms and platforms that come and go. Does that make sense? So I'm basically saying like, push, you know, your pre-order is now the order. You're going to make the most money when you're pushing, you know, those bundles any anywhere from like, you know, $5 to digital, all the way up to $100 for um, cool packages that include vinyl, shirts, tickets, all that good stuff. Like, push that on day one. Say like, this is how you support you support me the most. As we, as we talked about in episode two, you can build a really enticing, you know, pre-order and campaign for your album. So it's like, you know someone thinks oh I'm just gonna spend five or ten dollars on the digital and suddenly they're spending ten twenty you know fifty dollars um, uh, more so again let them and um, okay so that's that's day one and then on day two of your release share on your social media and your text list that your music is out on Bandcamp again it can be on Bandcamp it can be on streaming and day one it's just like in what order are you sharing this information So Bandcamp is where you'll receive the second highest profit margins and second most amount of direct-to-fan contact info for future use. Uh, More often than not, you get email addresses from fans that purchase your music on Bandcamp. Um, Some of them are going to opt out of that, but most of them um, opt in. Bandcamp will receive a 15% commission on any funds brought in here, which is pretty good because that's usually, like I said, dollars and not fractions of a cent. Your website is the best because you're only going to pay like a PayPal or a credit card fee. That's going to be like 2 3% or whatever. So then on day three, share your social media and sh- share on your social media and to your text list that your music is available on, on streaming platforms. As if you, as I mentioned, as if you let your fans know that on day one, you're just encouraging them to pay fractions of a penny instead of, like I said, dollars, tens of dollars, hopefully hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. So they can't give you that money if there's no way to do that. Does that all make sense? I'm not saying don't be on streaming, but it's just like, in what order are you communicating this? And it's, I'm talking over like 72 hours, you know, so it's not that much time. I know you're excited to get that Spotify link out there, but, um, you know, I, I mentioned that, On a different podcast I host, the I Voted podcast, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Seth Godin, who really invented permission marketing, which is what we're talking about. Your fans have given you uh, their permission to have their mobile phone number and their email address. That's why they are um, the hardcore super fans who are willing to give you money as well. And Seth, you know, obviously summed it up better than I did. He was like, on Spotify, on social media platforms, you are the product, right? And... You know, we don't have to go through all this again. But um, they have all your fan data. They're never going to give you your fans' email addresses. They're never going to give you their mobile phone numbers. So that's why collecting that data is so important. And those are your most valued fans because they've given you that data. They're going to give you money. There's nothing wrong with the more casual fans that are checking you out on on streaming. You know, find you on a playlist. That's all great too. Um, But really doing right by those hardcore fans, like I said, making sure they get the the release a few days early, um, creating really memorable experiences for them, you know, hanging out at the merch table, like signing, saying hi, we'll talk more about that in the live and Ed merch episodes. Um, but all all of those experiences last a lifetime, and and think about how you feel and or felt, you know, maybe when you were younger in those situations as well. So that's like the that's the A plus version. That's the direct to fan section, the, the direct to consumer section. Um, does that make sense? Okay, great. Um, but obviously, we want your music on on streaming. We want your music um, available all all over the world. Even though, of course, Bandcamp and your website is all over the world as well. So um, I'm going to go through a variety of distribution options um, for getting your music up on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, all that good stuff. Um, The shorthand for that is often DSPs. Um, So digital service provider, I believe. Happy Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. So... I've done the math on this, and if you are making less than a few hundred dollars a year on streaming per release, or you're a new artist and this is your first release, go with CD Baby. Um, They're going to take a percentage, um, but uh, like I said, I've done the math. So if you're making more than a few hundred US dollars a year on streaming per release, uh, you're going to want to go with TuneCore or DistroKid. That's going to be better for you financially. But if it's less than a few hundred dollars per release, which is a lot of people on streaming, CD Baby is going to be your friend. I do really like um, CD Baby. Um, has a lot of great services as well. I like TuneCore too. But just from a hard math standpoint, if you're making um, you know a few hundred dollars, less than a few hundred dollars per release per year, go with CD Baby. If you're making more than that, check out TuneCore. Probably TuneCore over, over DistroKid. Their, their prices are very similar, and I know is adding, um, you know, some more features. If you are an electronic artist, you know, an EDM, a dance artist, you're going to want to go with Label Engine, because that's really going to prioritize getting your music um, onto Beatport. You guys know there are these are all called these are all called aggregators. Maybe you don't know that, but you guys know there are plenty more aggregator options to get your music out on streaming worldwide. But I wanted to review the pricing structures or the you know which ones you should go with um, based on where you're at um, out of the most common aggregators and. Most of you know this, but you own your recording rights when you distribute through an aggregator. They're not taking any ownership, at least the, at least the ones I mentioned. I've never heard of an aggregator, um, you know, owning rights. So uh, are we clear on aggregators? OK, great. Um, there's also selective distribution companies. So that's going to be like Symphonic, Red Eye, The Orchard, and there's many more. These companies will receive anywhere from 10 to 20% of your streaming income. And once again, you own your rights. And amazingly, from my, I don't know if that's a word, but um, from my perspective, amazingly, uh, they are not going to take a cut of your band camp. They're not going to take a cut of your website sales. So where you make, it, it's ama- again, it's amazing. Where you make the most money, those companies, none of those companies are going to touch, right? Like DistroKid, TuneCore, CD Baby, the aggregators aren't going to touch. And then um, the more selective distribution companies um, aren't going to touch either. And you know what? Uh, well, let me explain the percentage on the selective distribution companies first. So these companies will receive anywhere from 10 to 20% of your streaming income. And once again, you, you own your rights, I personally really love uh, some of the work Symphonic is doing. I've had some really good experiences with them. But I've also worked with these selective distribution companies and realized that artists are making more money with aggregators. They are making more money on, on TuneCore, you know, DistroKid, the, the companies that I mentioned before. So, you know, it's worth exploring working with these uh, more selective distribution companies. Um, you can also ask for an advance from these more selective distribution companies. That's one reason I've, you know, sometimes advised specific artists um, to work with them. If uh, there, was, there was an artist I was working with that needed a little more cash to finish her recording. Um, but that, you know, that was a few years ago. Now you could work with, um, if you're um, generating at least 10,000 streams a month, you can work with companies like Beatbread and they, they will actually just give you a cash advance um, based on your streaming. Um, They have algorithms to figure out uh, and calculate and project your royalties and and you own your rights as well. But you can get a cash advance uh, from these companies uh, if you need one. I mean, that's something like we've touched on a little bit, too. Like, don't just take cash for cash's sake. I mean, we're talking about that with Matt Wong yesterday. Um, If it's for something specific, right, your career, your life, you know, some as opposed to like Matt mentioned like sneakers or whatever, right? I mean, take care of yourself for sure, you know, get yourself a treat. But hey, you know, I think we know what he, we know what he means. Um, so anyway, so if you do ask for an advance from these more selective distribution companies, that might affect your distribution rate. So if they offer you 90% in your favor, 10% to them, but you're like, you know what, I need a little bit of money for whatever reason, they're like, okay, well, it's gonna be 85, 15, you know? So then that that's gonna slide a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's nice to have a support system and a point human to ask questions to and pitch you to playlists on, you know, this very specific part of your career. They're not advising on, Touring or publishing. I mean, some of these. Uh, Symphonic actually has a publishing admin company, but generally speaking, um, they are just focused on streaming. Right? They are pitching you to playlists. They're really paying attention to you know trends, new tools that the streaming companies are are rolling out. So, um, yeah, I you know, it's it's worth experimenting with. Um, you can you know if, if one of these come if you reach out to one of these companies and they're up to work with you. You can see how it goes. You can see if even if they're taking you know, 10 15%, if they have led to more streams and more money. Um, but also know that the aggregators that I mentioned before um, also have playlist pitching and support. They just work with a lot more artists. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's worth experimenting with some of these selective companies. Compare what you, you know, made on a release with them, although they're going to want your whole catalog for sure, um, versus what you made previously. Um, but you know, like I said, it's like, if I'm a huge artist, I'm going to go with a uh, TuneCore or DistroKid, right? Cause what's that 20 bucks a year or something. And then you keep all of the money. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, don't have FOMO if, uh, you're not with one of these selective distribution companies, because, you know, with all this stuff, you know, with stuff like that, if it's like, if going with them meant being huge, then everyone would do it. That was a really good point. Um, you know, Matt made yesterday talking about going with ASCAP or BMI, like, yeah, one might ha- pay a little bit more for HBO or a little bit uh, for film, but if, you know, one or the other paid significantly more across the board, everyone would, would, would go with it. So anyway, that's the deal with uh, selective uh, distribution companies. Um, I'm going to touch on physical distribution for a moment. Uh, you really should, uh, you can and should press CDs up because frankly, they're really cheap to produce. And you can autograph them and sell them, you know, sell them for more in in your bundles, in in your pre-orders. In the foreword of the book this podcast is based on, Zoe Keating shared that she actually puts CDs out at her shows for donation only. And she ends up making more um, because people just want to give or a lot of times they want to grab a CD and and pass it along um, to a friend and, and spread the word. Um, on her music. So I thought that was a really interesting strategy. And, you know, we we talked about this in episode two, but of course, you should definitely press up vinyl. Um, you can do so through Gotta Groove. Um, I've had really good experiences working with them. And, you, and they only have a hundred copy minimum. Um, or you could work with someone like United Record Pressing in Nashville. Um, they have a 300 copy minimum. But as as so many of you know, many of these plants are very backed up. So you can also work with uh, Diggers Factory um, for on-demand vinyl, and that way you're also not stuck with extra stock. I'm sure that's happened to some of you, where you order a bunch of vinyl and then you're not necessarily selling uh, selling through it. So um, your profit margins are going to be lower anytime you do on-demand. Um, but again, you know, then then you're not stuck with um, you know an apartment or a roomful of room full of extra vinyl. So. Uh, On-demand can be really handy if you're just getting going and you don't necessarily have those upfront funds to pay for vinyl. Now, that said, you actually should have some upfront funds and an idea on your vinyl quantity because of your pre-order, right? Um, but if you haven't sold 50 or so copies um, in your in your pre-order of vinyl and you don't have the funds yet to order uh, the 100 um minimum vinyl records with Gotta Groove go with Digger's Factory, right, Um, to press on-demand vinyl. um, That way, as you continue to grow your career and grow how many folks um, will buy that vinyl. And of course, don't forget to sell the test pressing for hundreds of dollars, as those are very exclusive and in-demand, you know, beloved items by your fans. Now, if you end up selling anywhere in the, like, 200, definitely 300 copies of vinyl... Um, reach out to the Coalition of Independent Music Stores and they will buy vinyl from you directly and distribute it to indie record stores worldwide. Maybe they'll even uh, distribute it to Tower Records' uh, new website it, um if they're not a Coalition of Independent Music Store member, um, maybe they will be soon. Um, but the, the Sims, for short, is a great group of fo- folks that, like I said, will just buy that vinyl from you. Um, and like I said, they're, they're usually, I, I would say if you sell 300 copies, they'll definitely be interested. You could reach out at 200 and be like, what do you think? Um, so you could reach out to Reg over there, um, who's a great guy, and hopefully um, buy some vinyl from you directly. So last thing, oh no, two more things before we bring Kristen on. Um, When you distribute your music through your aggregator or through your, um, you know, selective distributor, double check that your music is being distributed on Pandora because there's also been, you know, uh, kind of a backed up queue on Pandora for quite a while. Um, but once it's up there, let your fans know that's something else you can post maybe on day seven or something, you know, maybe further down the line. Like, hey, just a reminder, I'm on Pandora. Feel free to make, you know, um, an artist channel on, on you know, on Pandora. You can also sign up for Pandora's AMP program um, and make shout outs like, hey, I, I, you know, if there actually are artist named Emily White, we might start working with one. Shout out to Emily Jane White. But if I were an artist, um, hey, Emily White here, you know, thanks for listening to my Pandora station. Um, the, those kind of shout outs. So at this point in the process um, that we're taking you through to cover the entire modern music industry in full, um, sign up for a Sound Exchange. That's how you're going to collect your royalties for uh, from Pandora, from Sirius, and any sort of internet radio. The technical term is non-interactive internet radio, which just means that um, you can't pick the songs like you can on Spotify, Tidal, Apple, all that good stuff. Um, But don't stress. I know I've been mentioning some revenue streams as we go. Um, Don't stress too much about that because we're going to do an entire episode uh, called Revenue Stream Checklist, which is episode 10. So I I will review all the revenue streams that are owed to you if you write music, if you record slash release music, if you play uh, and if you play live. Um, and then I'll also share bonus revenue streams where you kind of have to go do something as opposed to your PRO or your publishing that's just owed to you, you know, once you register your music and sign up. Okay. So one last thing, um, I touched on this, uh, in the legal episode, I believe as well, but of course you can also sign with a label. Um, you know, if, if there's labels interested and they will distribute your music as well. So an indie label is generally going to be a 50, 50 deal, um, most indie labels will license your music, but frankly, kind of the bigger ones, the bigger hipper ones, a lot of them will own your recordings in perpetuity and it's it's non-negotiable. So it's kind of ironic they're called independent labels, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and then a major label is going to be like 90-10 with the 90 in their favor. That's all negotiable. Um, it could be 85 in their favor. Uh, it could be 91 in their favor. And more often than not, they are going to require um, signing your publishing rights, your touring rights, your merch rights, your branding rights. But if you, frankly, follow the steps in this podcast and in this book and build yourself up as much as possible, you're going to be in the best possible position, um, you know, to maybe even license your music to a major label or get a better distribution rate with someone like Symphonic, right? Right. Um, I interviewed Freddie Gibbs manager Lambeau and they built his career career up over a decade and now license his releases to major labels, which is an amazing you know, position to be in. So Freddie owns those recordings, which is pretty incredible.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Okay, so we're going to bring out our esteemed guest for today. I'm going to share a little bit about Kristen while we get that rolling. Kristen Jewell is the founder of Jewell Concepts, an incubator and music marketing-slash-management firm for independent artists. Kristen's team encourages artists to know their worth, keep their focus, and prepares them for a high-stakes and data-driven industry. I love that. She's a senior analyst with Water & Music, which is a research intelligence network for the music industry with a focus on AI music, Web3, and music in the metaverse, which is what we're going to be highlighting today, really like the next phase of distribution and more. Kristen is an advisor to several startups, including Sound Medicine, Medicine, a binaural Beats label uh, and soon-to-be app, stvd.io space, an online place for young artists to connect with their community and fans, the NVAK Collective, which is a web three label and foundation set to focus on fostering learning of music production with youth in underserved areas of the world. That's amazing. She prioritizes mentorship for young entrepreneurial minds with both Grammy U and Live Nation's Music Forward Foundation. Kristen resides in Los Angeles, which is why she's going to be on the monitor today, where she is not only the host of her web series and podcast, Uncut Jewels, but is also an avid member of the Live Music Rocks Any Night of the Week Club. Let's welcome Kristen. Yeah, amazing.
1: Awesome. How are you? I'm very good. Can you hear me? We can hear you. We can see you. Excellent. We can hear you. Excellent. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. This is so exciting. Same. It's. Uh, I have to say, it's Navoc Collective and yes. Studio Space. I didn't They're get just a chance to run with those the V's.
0: Yes, I apologize. I did not get a chance to run uh, run that by you.
1: No, you're fine. You're okay. fine. Don't worry.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. And and we didn't even get a chance to review a lot of this before. So anything I'm wrong on, just keep just Don't keep worry. correcting. I okay,
1: will. I'll totally let you know. Yeah, great. it's so great. I wish I could be there in person. I am so FOMO right now. Like you have no idea. Although I am, I hope everybody's safe with the uh, the fire, the the, um,
0: the, the clouds
1: coming yeah. from Canada.
0: Thank you. I was gonna say it's like you you haven't really missed too much this week, but. We Our yeah. lungs are feeling better today, right? Like we can all good. breathe a little bit better. So that's nice. Good.
1: We've yeah. been dealing with this for like 10 years out here with these fires. So I don't, I totally know what you're going through. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I've seen a lot of good West coast advice actually that like your lungs are better after a few days and you got to wash mm-hmm. all your clothes and all that stuff. Yeah. So
1: yeah, but I definitely, I miss New York. I can't wait to get yeah. back soon. Yeah. Well, we're here. We're here when you, when you get here. And thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, from my perspective, it, it looks like you didn't start your career in music. Is that correct?
1: No. Actually, I um, I I, mean, I played French horn, and I, I DJ. Those are my turntables there. Um, and I've played guitar since I was four. So, like, I've always had some aspect with music in my life. But, um, you know, I was a writer. And so, mm-hmm. that was the biggest focus when I went to NYU was for writing and broadcast journalism. And... Um, during that time, I sort of realized like, you know, when you do all those internships mm-hmm. and you get a chance to see all the different types of work, as much as I love music, I loved advertising. Yeah. And I, I just fell into the advertising rabbit hole for you know, a good 25 years uh, between client side and agency side. Most of my work in New York was agency side mm-hmm. after NYU. I came out to Los Angeles and did some stuff here in um, agency side as well. So it was really interesting. And I just, I love the fast pace. I loved new business. That was, I don't know if you've ever gotten, I mean, you probably your whole life is new business at yeah. this point. But at that time, it was a very select group of people who were being, you know, included in the RFP process. And I worked for creative agencies. So yeah. th- we were always doing some really fun uh, work. It was just inspiring. And that, then yeah.
0: I'd say well, probably... Just, sorry, sorry to interrupt. What's an
1: RFP for those that don't know? Oh, sorry. Request for proposal mm-hmm. and then, you know, information. So basically how you would handle their ad business. Like they've got X amount of millions of dollars to spend. You have to figure out what you want to do with them. So I've always done plant, like, you know, there's a media plan. There's a creative plan. There's a strategy that goes into designing all of that. So I would sit, you know, as a group on top of those things just to connect the dots so that by the time it goes to the client, it's cohesive and everyone knows what the value is of the agency that you know we were. So if you work for a couple different agencies, you get to see how, you know I like to call it like retrofitting a strategy mm-hmm. oftentimes because you know the end goal is this. And then, you know, you have these things to work with. So you got to figure out how to like make it really fit and be strategic. So I've, I've been a strategic planner of some form in my life, my whole adult career, since I was probably 18. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So did you, but, come, you know, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, but you know, that's like the whole point to the life cycle, right? Back then they were saying, Um, you know, we might have five different career changes in our life, which was like traumatizing to so many people. And I was like, well, that doesn't even sound like a lot. And now look at us, like you can do anything at any point in your career that you want, which I think is the most empowering part about being um, frankly alive today. You know, we couldn't do this 40, 30 years ago. That was just not an option. A hundred
0: percent. Yeah. So did you come into contact with music when you were at McCann Erickson? Maybe explain what McCann Erickson is,
1: if folks don't know. Um, well, so the agencies I worked with were really top of the, like, most of them were creative. So it was like TBWA, Shiat Day, which is still around. Um, I worked in Los Angeles at the Binoculars Building, which was designed by Frank Gehry at the time. And it was really, like, popping. Um, we were winning back Apple. They put Apple on the map. Um, with their campaign in the Mm eighties. They have all, they were just incredible. And then I worked for Cliff Freeman and partners in New York. And I also worked for McCann Erickson here. During the process of working, uh, Cliff Freeman wrote um, Wendy's Where's the Beef campaign and um, Sometimes You Feel Like a Nut, Sometimes You Don't for Almond Joy, which I don't know if any of you have heard. But um, so music has always been a part of these campaigns because you don't do an advertising campaign without a bed of music of some sort you know, underneath it, even if it's like instrumental. Uh, so the designing of music element to an advertising campaign is 100% part of the process. Whether or not you do it before you have the strategy or after. Sometimes, like I don't know if you guys have seen Lee Fields, the new spot, sorry for, uh, (laughs) this is so sad, but there's a new spot that's running, uh, it was on the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. and it was for a brand, Farmer's Dog. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you guys have heard of that. Lee Fields, who's a homie and I love him so much, he had a sync in that. They followed the entire song of his I, I will love you forever. And they had it about the family and the kid, the dog and when the dog is a puppy all the way through. And it's like so powerful. Music can sometimes just be like the story for the ad campaign. That's true. So it depends on, you know, like I said, sometimes it's like a little bit afterwards. Cause you don't have much of a budget and ideally you'd want it first and foremost, where you can maybe make a difference and have that emotional impact come through
0: a hundred percent. And yeah. Tell us about your work as VP Brand Director at Tamosimo Brand Advertising.
1: So after I left Cliff Freeman, I wanted... This is so honest and truthful, I'm just going to share. I really, really wanted more... Um, how do I say this? Night. I wanted more autonomy. And when you're working with Cliff Freeman and you're doing the creative and it's new business, it sort of like passes through you and then you get to work on a business. But I wanted to like be, you know, a part of a company, like actually be responsible for the fiduciary you know, be fiscally responsible. So uh, I took this job at DeMossimo and it was wonderful. I got to like meet some incredible people. I worked with Hotwire. We did all of these amazing campaigns and it was a lot more responsible advertising-wise. So when you think about building an ad campaign, you know, there's the media budget, which you usually have to have if you're doing television back then or even today, you have to have more resources to do that. You need a campaign that's worthwhile watching and you need to buy the media dollars. When you're working at a company like DeMossimo, we focused on things that were more brand direct, if you will. So they took the level of like my experience had been all branding. Mm -hmm. Now we got to match that with direct, which was kind of the turning point with what we're seeing today, this idea of responsible branding. Mm -hmm. So you take the asset and you make it have legs in other areas. So you get to know your consumer, right? The KYC. So that was a really interesting time. Um, It was kind of Pretty new at the time. I mean, I've always heard of direct marketing, but I had never actually gotten the chance to do that at radio, at TV. So our clients were, you know, like I said, Hotwire. And it was interesting, we had many other ones, but Hotwire at that time, I was living in New York, obviously, Demosimo's in New York, and we had 9 11. And um, so that was the real you know, we were owned by how I was owned by six major airlines. So Mm -hmm. it was the first time I'd had a campaign like pulled from all, everything just stopped. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting time to be in branding because it taught me a lot more fiscal responsibility for what your dollars do and how you can make them work harder.
0: Wow. Very cool. Mm. So did that lead to working with Mary J.
1: Blige's brand brand management team? Well, nine okay. eleven did that wow. for me. Okay, so yeah, yeah how did that so happen? Nine eleven happened, and you know, I, I don't know how, how many of you guys were actually in the city at that time. Uh everybody, born, like, sorry, about a serious like topic. But. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely a little older. Um, we had a, um, a moratorium on advertising. I mean, every, nobody was traveling, nobody was doing anything. So I lost my job at DeMossimo, thank you, 9-11. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we, I went into like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do, right? Like this yeah. is that time where no one's working for nine months. We, it was the first time I didn't have a job in my whole career, and so I decided I wanted to do music, and uh, this is this is where the music industry is who you know, right? So I had a friend in LA who worked at MCA Records, and they had been trying to get me into MCA with Jane Simon for a while, but I was, to be honest with you, too expensive at the time. They were just it was too much of a cost budget for them. They, you know, anyway. So now I had this chance to do some freelance work, and I met with a woman through that same friend at at in New York at Interscope. I just loved it. And she brought me in to help her with things and we got to work on Bubba Sparks campaign, Timbaland's campaign, Mary J Blige campaign, got to do all sorts of stuff. And then from there, they were it was I was still again too senior for an actual role at that time, so I moved out to Los Angeles and started working with Facet Creative, which was that gentleman's company who helped me Meet all these people, so he was like, "Well, come at, out to L.A. and we'll just disrupt from here." Yeah. So that's what I did after nine eleven. I moved back to L.A. Mm-hmm. and because uh, I had been here before in the nineties, and I came back in the two thousands, and uh, yeah, we just completely worked with even more married camp. I mean, we worked on so many things. I think we did Eve, the Rough Riders, worked on all these different campaigns. So he was a packaging guy, and I got to help you know Enrique Iglesias work Kisos sauce with the branding. So he would come over, and we would just go through images, Lionel Richie, go through images to figure out what the brand would look like in his packaging. We did a tour diary with Enrique Iglesias. So, I mean, he has, you know, Staples Center, huge, you know, arenas. So everybody just wanted like something. and At the time it was like CDs or vinyl or t-shirts. And then we just did like a tour journal too. So it was a really fun experience. And that taught me a lot about the creative process mm-hmm. in music. And frankly, how, uh, It doesn't have a lot of money either you know there's just like i went from doing millions of dollar campaigns where we had at least a million dollars per commercial to create to having like you know a couple thousand on something so
0: it was very illuminating yeah i bet and just to be clear i was around in 2001 it's just some of our
1: audience are like 20 so totally yeah no worries (laughs) it's fine yeah history repeats itself if we're not careful right 100 (laughs) we're here to remind yes